Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. Here we are with episode 61, in which we're going to talk about real van life. And it might be a little bit of a rant, and that's okay. We're also going to talk about having a build that has no insulation at all. Can it be done? What does it mean for you? A tale from the road involving sneakers and a fire and a place to visit that is incredible. Hold out. This place is so incredible, you can't even get there with a van. But we're going to save that for later. First, though, hello! Welcome, everybody. Thanks for being there. I'm very happy to be here with you. It's been a while since I've had a rant. I think I'm I'm owed a rant. So if you don't like rants, uh, you can skip ahead about 10 minutes, and we will get to just the actual content. But... First, I will tell you what started this thing, this idea that I needed a rant. And it is this. I saw a post on the internet, imagine that, that said, van life is gentrified. Now that took me aback and made me think a bit. And I'm going to take you back now because I don't know what your experience is in life or who you are. So I have to explain some things. And if you know what I'm talking about, just bear with me here. Gentrification, as I understand it, is the idea that rich people, or at least people with means, come into a poorer neighborhood, buy a property, fix it up, and then sell it for a lot more money. And what this does is it raises the price of all the property in that neighborhood to such a degree that the poor people living there have to move because they can no longer afford it. Not only that, in many cases, these poorer neighborhoods have some cultural significance, and that is removed when this happens. Many people in big cities are very familiar with this, and in fact, I could be accused of gentrifying a little bit because the house we just moved out of, we indeed fixed up and sold for a lot more money than we paid for it, and it was in a modest neighborhood. Now, that wasn't our intent. We didn't even know we were going to be moving, but still, stuff like that contributes. Okay, now that we have the concept down, what does that have to do with van life? I mean, we're not even talking about property here. Everybody's got their own van. There are no neighborhoods. So what did this person mean by that? Well, I know what they meant, and it's an interesting jumping-off point for this discussion. There are many different groups of people doing quote, hashtag van life, quote. It's a different thing for all of them. First, there are the people of Instagram. You know, the naked toes out the back of the van, off the beach with the dog that only has three legs that was rescued from the shelter and all that stuff. There's that, the public image of van life. The image of van life that is causing all these people who don't know anything to write these articles about how horrible van life was for them because they couldn't figure out how to turn on the heat. That van life. Then there is the van life I am part of, which is folks who buy a van and build it out and then go camping with it. Or the full-timers, which is a subset of that, who build out their own van and then go live full-time. And then there's another subset of people who just live in their van full-time and didn't build it out. But there's a group that doesn't get enough attention. And they're the ones who are talking about gentrification. It's the people who live in vans because they have to. These are folks that, due to whatever circumstances in their life, have two choices. 
They can live in a van, or they can be homeless. Given those two things, I would choose to live in a van, and that's what they're doing. But because of COVID, because of the hype around van life, vans have gotten crazy expensive. Right now, it is so hard to find a van. I mean, I haven't been doing this for that long, but I do keep track of van prices, and they have never been higher, and van supply has never been smaller since I started paying attention. And for folks who require a van to live, this is a real problem, because suddenly that $3,000 van that they saved up for for two years is now a $6,000 van or a $7,000 van, and they can't even get into it. Not only that, all these people building out vans during the COVID pandemic have bought up all the supplies of vents and batteries and things like that. Now, many of them are hard to get. If you have plans to build a modest van, it's tough right now. As an aside, there are ways around this. Minivans are still plentiful. You don't need to buy a Sprinter van or a cargo van to do this. There are minivans, there are SUVs, but some of the folks who have been living in vans for years... They were the ones that were being made fun of in the Saturday Night Live skit, Live in a Van Down by the River, and suddenly that's cool. But they're not benefiting from that at all. They're not having the cool time. They're living the same life they always did, except now it's a lot more expensive. That's all interesting stuff to think about and talk about, and I don't have any opinion or rant about any of that. That's just reality. The thing I have a rant about is whenever someone posts something like van life is becoming gentrified, everyone comes in with their opinions on what van life is. Oh, but that's not van life. That's homelessness. Or, oh no, that's not van life. You live in an SUV. Or, no, that's not van life. You have a truck camper. That's truck camper life. Ah, okay. It is no secret that in the U.S. right now, it is a very divided country. I don't talk about politics on this show, and I'm not going to. But that division is palpable, and it comes into play even in just everyday van life. You get a totally different vibe in any American city than you will get in any rural area. And it seems as though people are trying to compartmentalize themselves into these tighter and tighter groups, and that's applying to van life. The group of people who have been living in vans for decades, they resent anyone else who is living in vans by choice. So there's that dynamic going on. And then you've got the purest van life folks who are like, if you don't live in a van full time, then you're not really doing van life. Or you have the vehicle purists who say that you have to have a sprinter van or you have to have built it out yourself etc, etc, etc. Everyone has their criteria. And it kind of makes me angry because there's no need for any more division. Van life can be something that is a big tent that welcomes everybody. And as I've said several times on this show, my definition of van life, which of course is the only one that matters. No, I don't actually believe that. But that definition of van life is you live and travel in a vehicle. And that's it. That's as broad as I can get. Oh, okay, Jeff, but what about those people who live in a van and don't actually drive it anywhere? What if that van doesn't move? Fine. They can come too. I don't actually think there's any reason to exclude anybody from, quote, hashtag van life, quote. 
If you have a bicycle and you're towing a trailer with it, awesome, join the club. You're a backpacker and you like to hang out with people who have vans, guess what? You get to play too. Why not? Why don't we just accept that we have a community here that can grow and accept as many people as there are, and we can build each other up, share ideas, solve problems together, and just have better lives? I really don't see any reason why it can't be like that. We can all have our own personal politics. The people who own cats can hang out with the people who own dogs. The people who have Dodges can hang out with the Ford people. The people who only eat meat can sit at a table with the people who are vegan. All right, maybe not. That might be going too far. Whatever divisions that you can imagine, they're artificial. Because there is something that we all have in common. All of us, doesn't matter what your goals are, doesn't matter what your vehicle is or where you're headed, we all have in common that we're alive right now. And that means we have problems to solve and we have help to give. Let's focus on those things. I mean, can we please? It's 2021. 2020 sucked. 2021 has had a rough start, especially for me. And uh, can we just have a little bit of hope now? Please, a little bit of cooperation. I would really, really like to see that. Tech Talk. Real winter has come to Illinois finally. It's snowing almost every day. Temperatures are hovering around zero Fahrenheit. And people are starting to think, oh, I really should have insulated my van a little bit better. Or, boy, I wish I had installed that diesel heater. So, what about those folks who don't want to install insulation? Can they live in the winter? Is it even a good idea not to have insulation? So let's just talk about that one specific part of insulation. There is an argument to be made that if you are going to stay in warmer climates, like let's say you're going to chase the sun and you're going to be in the north in the summer and you're going to be in the south in the winter, that you should not insulate your van. Insulation not only will keep the heat out, it will also keep the heat in. And you don't want that in the summer. In the summer, you want that heat to escape. So if your van's heating up all day and it cools off at night, you want that heat to get out. And insulation's actually going to get in the way. But what if you have this no-insulation build and then you want to go up north? What do you do then? The truth is, any lack of insulation can always be overcome with heat. That's it. It's true. If you don't have any insulation at all, You can still go up north, you're just going to spend more money heating the van. If you have a diesel heater, it's going to work twice as hard. If you have a propane heater, you're going to go through twice as much propane, or whatever the number actually is. People spend a whole lot of time arguing and fussing over insulation, and it probably isn't necessary. That is to say, the fussing isn't necessary. I do think some insulation is necessary because not only are you trying to keep a cold van cold or a hot van hot, depending on the season, you're also trying to keep condensation down a bit. So here's my recommendation for those of you who don't want to deal with insulation. Cover the bare metal with something. Cover it with fabric, four-way stretch carpet, something. And the windows you should definitely have reflectix for for when you need it. This is going to help keep down condensation, and condensation leads to water puddling. That leads to mold. That's a bad thing. Insulation does help prevent mold. So make sure you consider that. You want the inside of your van to be dry. 
if you don't want to deal with all this insulation and all the crazy videos you see where people spend $600 and six weeks putting in their insulation, guess what? You don't have to do it. You just have to know what you're getting into. Tales from the road. Back in my youth, I used to go camping quite a bit, and I didn't have a van, although if I did, I would probably not use it because I didn't have a driver's license. But I did have a tent, and I did go camping in a place that we called Salem Woods. Now, I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts, and in the middle of Salem, there is this wooded area called Highland Park, and I used to go out there with the local Boy Scout troop, and it was my favorite, favorite thing to do. I picked out a spot that I thought was the best, and I found out later it was actually the highest spot in the entire city of Salem. It didn't have a name or anything. It's this rocky, flat spot overlooking Thompson's Meadow in Highland Park. That's actually enough information to find the spot. We did the buddy system in Boy Scouts, so I'd always have a buddy with me. And uh, this one time, this buddy, who I will call BJ for this example, it's not his real initials, he uh, he was a little bit goofy, and he was particularly goofy on this trip because we got there, and he had only brought hiking boots. When you go camping, especially hiking, it's always a good idea to have boots and then another pair of shoes to like walk around camp in. I had brought boots and sneakers, but the boots I brought were just kind of like heavy-duty sneakers, so I could actually wear them around camp. So I thought I was being nice, and I said, hey, you can wear my sneakers all as well. I was also a very experimental kid, and I thought, hmm, we're going to make spaghetti. We're going to need a pot. Pots are heavy. What else could we boil water in? And I was looking around the house, and I found one of those butter cookie tins. You know the kind that never actually have butter cookies in them? You open them up, and they're filled with, like, marbles or batteries or buttons or something? I had one of those, and I took it over to the sink, and holy cow, it held water. And I was like, hmm, this could be used for cooking spaghetti. I packed it out and took it all the way out into the woods and set it down in the fire and filled it up with water. And sure enough, it boiled water. It was great. It saved a lot of weight. It boiled the water. Everything was fine. Except for one thing I didn't think of. One of the nice things about pots is that they have handles. You can pick them up and move them off the fire. And I sadly uh, had not thought of this and didn't know how to get this boiling tin of water out of the middle of the fire, which at this point was all coals and super hot. And so I was trying to figure out how I could get a couple of sticks under there or, you know, maybe find some wire or do something with tent stakes. And then my buddy BJ said, don't worry, I've got this. And he walked over to the fire and stuck his foot in the fire and pushed the tin of boiling water out of the fire quite violently, getting ash in the water and moving the rocks out of the way. And as I'm watching this, I notice that when he took his foot out of the fire, he was no longer wearing my sneakers, or at least no longer wearing both of them. On his right foot, what had formerly been a sneaker, was now a sole just attached to his foot by the laces and some charred, melted nylon that was rapidly adhering to his skin. Yeah, it turns out that sticking a foot covered with only a sneaker, and not even socks, directly into a fire is not a great idea. We, we got to practice all that first aid that Boy Scouts are always trying, and uh, 
We evacuated him off to the hospital where he spent the next six weeks with not being able to wear shoes. No mention of my poor sneaker, but that's okay. It gave its life, well, it gave its life for an actually really stupid cause. And we didn't even get to eat the spaghetti. Product review. So in my van, I did something that I haven't seen anyone else do. So I'm going to talk to you about it and tell you whether it's a good idea or not. I have an NV200, it has a fairly small ceiling, and it was small enough that I could use a single 8x4 sheet of whatever I wanted, and it would cover up nearly the entire ceiling. All I had to do then was trim around the edges and put a transition between the front headliner and whatever I put up in the back. So I went to Home Depot and looked at the paneling, and, well, I grew up in the 70s. I think I've had enough paneling in my life. And then I saw wainscoting paneling. Now, if you're not familiar with wainscoting, real wainscoting is what most people do in their vans. It's like tongue and groove pieces of wood, but they sell paneling that looks like it. It has grooves cut in it. So looking at it, you kind of can't tell it's just a piece of paneling. And since my ceiling was so low, I saved probably three quarters of an inch by doing this. I'm like, okay, this is great. It was a pain in the butt to put up. But now that it's up there, it actually looks pretty good. So here's a couple of things to know if you want to try this wainscoting stuff. First off, it's cheap. It was like $8 for the entire sheet. So don't be afraid to try it and then see if you like it and if you don't, rip it out. The other thing is, is that while it's paneling and it does bend to meet the contours of your ribs, which is something nice that paneling can do, it doesn't do it infinitely. And because it has those grooves cut in there, it does have a tendency to snap where the grooves are. So you have to be very careful. And the most important piece of advice I can give you for this is get some help. I did this by myself. In fact, I literally had no help with any aspect of my van build for good or bad. This was the hardest thing to do was put up that ceiling. And I made one of the biggest mistakes in my entire van build with this. I forgot to mark where the ribs are. So I didn't know where to drill in after I got it up there. And I just kind of had to guess. Don't do that. Don't do that. Mark where your ribs are so you know where to drill in if you're going to put a single piece of sheet good on your ceiling. And pro tip, if you want it to look good, at Home Depot, Lowe's, Menards, etc., they sell these little screw caps. They're these little plastic things that you put on the screw, screw it in, and then you can snap a cover over the screw head. It gives it a little bit of a professional look, and it will help with rust, which in some highly humid vans can be a problem. So, do I recommend paneling that looks like wainscoting? Uh, yeah, I do. I'm pretty happy with it. It's pretty flexible. The price is right. And if you had two people, you could put it up in an hour where it would take you a lot longer with other stuff. So, give it a shot. A place to visit. Okay, so you've been traveling in your van and maybe you want to try something a little different. I went to a place that is absolutely in my top five places I have ever been to and I'm going to share it with you. I only share this place with people that I like, so just know that. This is a place that not very many people know about. It is in Ecuador, the country of Ecuador. It is called Sacha Lodge. That is S-A-C-H-A Lodge. Sacha means forest in Spanish. This place is very, very remote. It is in the Amazon basin. 
It's not on the Amazon River. It's on one of the tributaries, but it doesn't matter. It's the Amazon. It is two hours by river from the nearest city, which happens to be Coca. You fly into Coca either from Quito or from wherever. When you book this place, they will tell you how to do this. You walk down to the river and get into one of these really long, high-speed boats, and they take you upriver, which is a fascinating experience. It's a, this is a very wide river. This is an experience, believe me, and these boats are super fast. They take you up the river for about 90 minutes, and then you dock. And then you hike for about 20 minutes, and what's waiting for you there? Another dock. And in this dock, there are dugout canoes. And you get in the dugout canoe, and you are paddled across a lake to the lodge itself. And the lodge is this absolutely gorgeous kind of treehouse-style lodge made out of native woods with a big, huge open area. And that is your home for the next three days, four days, however long you stay. At night, you sleep in these really nicely appointed kind of... They're not really tree houses because they're not in trees, but they're like tree houses. And heck, you've got monkeys running around on the porch and a goody's running around under the porch and howler monkeys yelling at you from the trees above. I mean, you're in the Amazon. They have queen-size beds. They have tables and seats and your own private shower and bathroom. This is luxury camping. When you get up in the morning, you walk down the trail and you go into the big lodge where there's a buffet breakfast waiting for you, and then you meet with your guide. Your guide will either take you into the rainforest or on a canoe trip. Depends on the day and you see all kinds of different things. You can go to a place called Parrot Lick where you will see hundreds and hundreds of parrots licking clay off of a riverbank. Or you can climb a kapok tree that is 200 feet in the air above the canopy and take in the entire rainforest from a big platform they built up there. Or you can walk across a high wire bridge way up and the birds will come And Anyway, that's all I'm going to tell you. It's actually much cooler than that, but that's enough. I want you to discover the rest for yourself. It's called Sacha Lodge. I will have a link in the show notes. This is not a paid promotion or anything like that. This is just a place I really love and I would like more people to see. And here's the good news. This costs much less than going to Disney World. It really isn't that expensive for the experience you're going to have. If you want more information on it, you want me to talk about it more, Send me an email at jeff at builttogo.com. Find me in the Facebook group, which is Built to Go, a Facebook group. Find a way to get a hold of me. I will talk about this place forever. Sacha Lodge in Ecuador. Okay, resource recommendation. I rediscovered this recently because someone posted it on Facebook, and I think it's a really cool thing, especially for van lifers. But you are going to need internet access to take advantage of this. You can even try this right now wherever you are if you have access to a computer or a phone. It's called Radio Garden. And online it's radio.garden. I didn't even know that was a thing you could type in, but it is. It's also an app on Android and iPhone. It's a map. It's actually kind of a flat globe. And as you go around the map, you see these dots. And there's quite a few of them. You'll notice there are more dots in cities, and that's because each dot represents a radio station. So it's basically a map of all the world's radio stations. 
Okay, that's pretty cool, but what's cooler is they're all live, and just by hovering over them, you can listen to them. So let's say you're in a part of the country or part of the world that you've never been in before. You can move this map around and you can zoom in however you have to, and you can find all these radio stations that are amazing. For example, I am messing around with the map right now, and I have found Bermuda. And Hamilton, the capital of Bermuda, has four radio stations that you can listen to. I didn't know that. I mean, I could have Googled radio stations in Hamilton, but doing this visually is so much more compelling. And I can very quickly just hover over the different stations and find the one I want. Maybe I'm looking for news. Maybe I'm looking for classic rock, whatever. I will know very quickly just by hearing it. Or if I'm traveling overseas and in a country where English isn't the most common language, maybe I'll get lucky and find that French English language radio station or whatever. Even if you're not in your van, this is just a really cool thing to check out. So again, it's called Radio Garden. I'll have a link in the show notes. Check it out. It's a lot of fun and you know, we could use some more fun these days. Q&A. Laura, thank you, Laura. Laura on Facebook was very nice and asked me to address a few issues. And one of those issues is this. Where the heck do you put your shoes? Shoes are one of those things that people don't consider when they're doing their van build. It's one of those things that after you're done with your van build and you go out on the first day and you hike through some muddy stuff and then you get back to your van and you're like, oh, what do I do with my boots? Well, it's an individual problem that you're going to have to come up with an individual solution for, obviously. But here are some ideas, and I'll tell you what I do in my little van. First thing is, don't bring all that many shoes. Bring just the shoes you need. What I do is I have three basic types of footwear with me because of that's how I live. I have a thin pair of very comfortable sneakers, and I use those to drive in because I don't I, if you listen to Tales from the Road a few episodes ago, you know exactly why I do that. But I, I want my feet to be as flexible and comfortable as possible while I'm driving. Then I have a sturdy pair of hiking boots. And then I also have a pair of Tevas for if I'm going to be you know doing stuff in the water. And that's it. That's all I bring. Now, the Tevas are easy, right? They're flat. And I can wash them off. So if it's hot out, I'll try to wear them as much as possible. The boots I do not wear in the van. I just don't. They live on the runner board by the front passenger door. Now remember, I'm in the van by myself, so all that area by the passenger seat is fair game to put stuff in. I line them up on the plastic sill right inside the door. So when I shut the door, they're kind of firmly in there, and then when I open the door, they're right there. And at night, whatever I'm wearing, which is usually my sneakers, I will take them off and put them on the plastic sill by the sliding door, which I use to get in and out of the back of the van. And that's it. That's how I handle them. Now, that's easier for me because I usually travel by myself. If I'm traveling with my wife, it's a different problem. So what I tend to do is try to keep boots that we're going to use just kind of handy. So I'll line my wife's shoes up next to mine on the sill. But shoes that we might need, like boots, I try to keep them under the bed. The point is, you have to think about this before you build your van and before you head out there. And you might be wondering why I keep putting these on the sill plates, and that's because they're plastic. They're easy to wash off, so it doesn't matter if my boots are muddy. 
that's one of the big concerns because you have such little space in there that if you come in the van with muddy boots, that mud's going to get everywhere. Now, if you are somebody who needs to have more shoes, you can buy one of those plastic shoe rack things. They're meant for closets. You're supposed to hang them up with your clothes. And they're very common in RVs because people use the pockets for everything. You do have that option. And you can use the empty pockets for all your other stuff like rolls of toilet paper or shampoo or whatever. But if you're going to do that, I would argue that you should be very careful at what shoes you get because not all of them fit well in there. You want to get shoes that squish flat very nicely. If you have a garage, obviously you can put your shoes in the garage. That's a good place too. You just throw them in a milk crate or whatever. But remember that your shoes have to air out. So you don't want to put them in anything enclosed. And finally, something you may not have thought of, if you're in a dire situation where you have too many shoes and don't know what to do with them, you can tie the shoelaces together and hang them. You can just hang them by their strings somewhere. I don't know where you're going to do that, but just knowing that, you might have an idea. It's like, aha, I've got this hook in the corner I'm not using for anything. I can hang them right there. Or if you have a coat hanging on a hook and you have a, a nice, clean pair of shoes you want to hang, hang the shoes first, hang the coat over that, and you have basically stored two things in the same amount of space. If anybody has any better ideas for shoes, please let me know. I'll be happy to share them with folks, or we can continue the discussion on the Facebook group. Thank you very much for listening to episode 61. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And again, just a reminder that we do talk during the week with each other. We're on the Facebook group. You can always get a hold of me via email. And I'm happy to answer any questions you might have. Every question you ask me helps me out, too. Until next time, remember the words of Jacqueline Woodson. Diversity is about all of us and about us having to figure out how to walk through this world together. <laughs>